Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast. This is the second part of our two-parter on digital identities. So last time we covered the history of identity from paper-based to biometrics to digital IDs, and then the ambitious goal of a fully self-sovereign identity. We spoke about the basic setup and the ecosystem, which is issuers, holders, and verifiers, and how the blockchain fits into that to make the process more efficient compared with traditional identity systems. And we also spoke about the overlap with Web3 and the shared goals, which are, you know, things like ownership, the user experience, obviously, which is always the problem that we're identifying with some Web3 projects, uh, privacy and how uh, digital identity can actually alleviate some of the privacy concerns compared with traditional identity systems. And finally, we gave some use cases. Jack spoke about employment and how to make employment and recruitment uh, more efficient. And I spoke about um, transportation, specifically about airlines and airports and how we can kind of bring all those separate, isolated individual systems to one unified solution to make the process more efficient. Um, so with all that said, this is the second part and let's kick off. Yeah, why not? And I think last time we said we would kind of cover some more of the crossover between Web3 and and digital identity and, and DIDs and all, all the concepts we'd spoke about with self-sovereign identity last week. So, I mean, why don't we start digging into what those actually are? So I wanted to kind of start maybe with the this data ownership crossover, right? So we talk a lot on the, on the show about um, Web3 being almost all about data ownership, putting data back in the hands of, of, of people rather than the big corporations. And it strikes me that Web3 in that sense is very much aligned with the ideas of digital identity where you're trying to actually help people take custody of their own identity, their own identity information, the documents, um, but in a way that's still secure for them. And, you know, there's lots of benefits to that. But for me, that's we can get onto those. But I think that's at the core of where the, the crossover actually is between the two. What do you what do you think about that? Have I missed anything on that on that point? No, definitely. Like we said before, it's a continuum. And obviously, the this term in itself, yeah. self-sovereign, means control. And it's about ownership, not just ownership of the data, but also the processes and everything dictating where that data goes and how that data is being used. And I think like everything's kind of a trickle-down effect from there. Like um, This also relates to the privacy. You know, If I'm controlling 
where my data is being used and how my data is being used. That also has an effect on the privacy because I can ensure that there's no middlemen that are actually being used in the communication. And that in itself also aligns with the peer-to-peer -peer element. There's just so many different areas that we're kind of continually speaking about within the, the Web3 and kind of framework that overlaps with identity. Like another big one is obviously provenance. There's like, so, we've talked so much in the AI, the NFTs, about why and how blockchain is so important for provenance of not just people when we're talking about identity, but also, you know, objects, art, NFTs, mm. etc. Like the authenticity of these things is so paramount. And we see that there's a big push in the Web3 space right now to just kind of put art quite simply on blockchain to enable that authenticity, that individualism to guarantee that something is unique and cannot be duplicated. And I think there's a lot of overlap between that and identity because individuals are in themselves individual. And I think that kind of makes it quite easy to understand. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that people get wrong quite a lot, actually, in the early days of Web3 even, um, is is how, the, how you link identity to your digital assets that you might own in, in Web3, like your your NFTs, your your actual kind of crypto and funds as well. Um, you see time and time again, people kind of using really poor privacy practices with mm -hmm. with their with their digital assets. Um, and because of the, you know, the traceable nature of the blockchain, then they, they end up causing themselves problems. In some cases, it's good for, for us in society when, when a scammer or something gets caught um, I've seen many times scammers, you know, um, or not even scammers, but like uh, people who are celebrities, in fact, like uh, pumping the price of an NFT right before they, they go and sell it. And because of the lax identity protocols they use, you know, they're just using one wallet address or something, then they end up getting caught for it. I don't know if you have you seen CoffeeZilla, Alec, ever? I, I'm aware of CoffeeZilla. Not, maybe not as um, kind of closely aware as you are, but I'm sure you're better yeah. enlighten me. Well, shout out to him because he's got a really good channel where he basically does a lot of the legwork and you see lots of mm. um, his kind of it's, it's almost like a new brand of Web3 investigative journalism where he mm. actively goes along and ties real world identities to um, of, of people who may be scamming or maybe uh, pr promoting and pumping the price of some mm -hmm. some asset. And he, I, I, the reason I mention it is because it's so easy if you don't implement proper digital identity to then, then be linked to, to your web3 interaction so that's kind of another maybe tangential link they're not just similar but they kind of go hand in hand and you need good digital identity systems for you to use web3 you know in a private yeah. manner that pres preserves your privacy well online and i think we're a long way off people actually uh using best practices at the minute right as, as you'll see yeah. on coffeezilla's channel it, it's very easy <laughs> to expose people at the minute yeah, and I think like uh, maybe there's more people that are familiar with how NFTs will work in like, the kind of the Web3 agenda, you know. I will have this wallet that controls or owns or stores the keys that relate to the NFTs, the items, the objects that are important to me, be that art, be that poor apes, potentially whatever it is. And then I can use that Web3 wallet to then show those things and probably say that I own those things and potentially exchange them or maybe just show off. And we kind of said before that in a way, like NFTs in the future could represent, you know, credentials that relate to me, like who I am. I'm the top 1% of fans of, of this artist, or I have you know, listened to this artist a hundred million times, or I've donated loads to this charity. And that 
are you kind of seeing the relation there more and more between NFTs in the form of objects that I own and NFTs that then relate to who I am, the characteristics, my online characteristics, like say being the top 1% yeah. of listeners, and then more and more to verifiable credentials. Like the link there is is quite an obvious one. It's not just mm-hmm. those things, the NFTs relate. It's also, you know, who I actually am as a person. I'm Alec Burns. I have a driving license. I have this degree. And I think in the future, we'll just have one platform hopefully i imagine that just defines all these they're all my web three in my web three wallet and i can just share them how i like and just define you know what i do what i like who i am everything about me i think that's quite exciting yeah exactly it's the it's it's a really good point right because it's the authenticity of the credential it doesn't it's not just important that you can you can uh, create the credentials or you know to use the web three term to mint a credential maybe Hmm. Uh, it's not important that you can do that because that might be very easy but actually proving that it's authentic and linking it to maybe the identity of the issuer or having some some public information about the issuer that you can access and, and use to check it against is, is crucial. Um, but yeah, I, and I think uh, that, that that's 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 an example of like NFTs are digital property in the same way that your verifiable credentials you should treat as digital property as well going forward, I think. Um, and that's also, you know, you're mentioning just being able to prove things to whoever is asking and, and the privacy element. That's why we also talk a lot about things like selective disclosure, because you don't need to, you don't want to have to show all that information every time you're verifying a single claim uh, about you. As we said, I think we talked about previously, like when you show your driving license to go into a bar, you end up exposing your, your house address, your full name, your, your, your driving license details, when all you need to do is prove the claim I'm over 18. So the authenticity of that claim, if you don't, if you're not going to show the full driving license, because that's what we're replacing, right? Mm. normally you say well this is an authentic claim because i i know what a driving license is i know that's a government issuer if the claim then goes down to just an age thing and it's like are you above 18 then you need to have a new way of checking the authenticity of that claim basically yeah and i think that's a big concern for people like you who go to these dodgy bars i assume but um (laughs) no that's the yeah that's the one angle with the privacy only needing to reveal the data that is actually relevant to the verifier but the other angle as well is the peer-to-peer thing that we keep emphasizing and this is like the term that i know me and you use regularly i prefer the term that you know web3 is all about the peer-to-peer internet rather than the decentralized internet because decentralized has all these kind of associations with you know anarchism and all this kind of stuff whereas peer-to-peer is more about the fundamental underlying technology and the efficiencies gained from that but i think the overlap between the peer-to-peer in web3 that we've kind of emphasized a lot and digital identity cannot be uh, strongly em- cannot be emphasized enough like it's so important and this peer-to-peer aspect is fundamental in the kind of the success of digital identity because like we said it really gives you the control to say i know who this is being sent to i know who has access to it i know how they're using it why they're using it and also all the privacy that comes to that if i'm not sending you know my digital identity or the verification of some credential through a middleman, I'm just sending it to the verifier in that instance for something that I know is relevant. I have a certain degree of a a certainty that that is not being used misappropriately, for example. And I think now I want to come to like, you know, the overall benefits. We kind of laid the foundations there with some of the technologies, like I said, the the provenance, the peer-to-peer, the, the data ownership. But the main benefits of digital identity, I think we can kind of categorize into to seven key areas that we've kind of mm-hmm. hinted at throughout this so far in the previous episode. Um, do you want to kick us off? Well, yeah, so I think that and this is a nice way to start from what we've just been talking about is this idea of you know portability. So 
being able to take your credential from one place or one domain to another, basically. So as we, you know, we're on the, the driving license example, your, your driving license is from the domain of uh, the DVLA in the UK or whoever, whoever's the authorizer of, you know, who's allowed to drive mm. a car in your country. And you're taking that into another domain. You're taking it to the domain of a, a, a commercial setting with a, with a bar or something where it's mm. actually about, you know, buying alcohol or something like that. So you, you that's an example. Actually, of worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's just an instructive example, you know, don't read anything <laughs> into it, Alec. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's, you know, and, and that's why we tend to, I would say we tend to use, I mean, I have friends in the past who've, who've used their passport when they go out and things, which I think is, is, is funny, but it's why Where we use that? our driving license so often, especially in the UK is because it's more portable it's smaller it fits in your wallet mm. it's it's like a it's a it's a physical example of a portable credential but when you go to the digital realm that goes you know through the roof because we always have yeah. our phones with us and you can put whatever you like in there you know your wallet's going to fill up with too many id cards if, if you have a credential for every single yeah, yeah. thing but your 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 digital wallet that we all use in our your our, our smartphones now can carry a you know virtually boundless amount of information and credentials so it's, it's really powerful going from physical to digital you just you almost inherently get that portability and then in the web3 world you know that portability is also applied in my mind to the actual proof as well right so it's like um, mm. you're not just taking uh, the information that says you know oh, here's a nice looking card in the uh, in the digital wallet you actually have cryptographic proof backing the authenticity of that yeah. um, when you take it to that other domain basically yeah, I mean, the beauty of the digital landscape is the convenience, right? It means that I can flip between, you know, 100 different services in one day if I really want to. The issue with that is that I need to prove my identity in each of those 100 different services. And this, you know, requires, you know, duplicated KYC checks, duplicated passports, du not passports, but duplicated passwords and username combinations. So I think yeah one of the most important things around digital identity is the portability aspect taking one credential and moving between things seamlessly a good example might be you know taking your your fifa top one percent uh score and using it to prove that you're a team player in linkedin that kind of thing shows maybe how web3 could be used in the future and i think when you think about how this applies to like the metaverse as well being able to jump between different domains and take who you are your credentials what you've achieved from place to place and not have to restart every single time because that's not seamless that's not efficient that's not what people want and i think maybe we'll talk about it in a bit more detail but one of the issues with this kind of stuff is why would a company want you to be able to leave? You know, if I set up the digital identity in my ecosystem, in my environment, why do I want it to be particularly portable? This means you can easily leave and go to my competitor. And this is maybe one of the resistances to, to, to digital identity, especially the portability aspects. Yeah, exactly. We've talked about this idea of, you know, sticky platforms and, and people, you know, actually not wanting to support portability and interoperable kind of standards. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer for that. It's probably one of the reasons that it's it's taking its time to 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 be adopted and widely mm. used. I mean, I do think there will be potential business models and and advantages for companies to open that up. And that's just talking about the private sector. Like it, it's for me, it's very obvious for governments to want to adopt this model because you know they have an incentive to increase efficiency, as we keep talking about. Mm -hmm. So. For them, 
and again, you're not exactly the portability isn't necessarily changing. I'm not going to move my citizenship, you know, because I can can use my credentials more easily abroad. It's about making mm -hmm. services easier, government services easier to access, yeah. especially if you are abroad in in a, in, in whatever context. Um, being able to to, to in, interoperate more easily with whatever is back in your home country, but yeah, the private sector yeah. one is is a bigger challenge. I mean, I think one interesting maybe resolution around that is um you know, this market for verifications and the fact that mm. when you when you need to get verified on a for, for a certain credential or someone needs to do a check say you're going for a loan application or something you normally have to go through these these kind of brokers of information you need to that that check will potentially get repeated many many times over the course of a year or something mm. whereas there might be a market for people providing this this different web three proof standard where they can then say, okay, well to an, another company, I know you have to verify my customer. Um, it'll yeah. cost you X to go and do that separately, or I'll give you, you know, X minus um, some, some small mm -hmm. percentage and you can do it more cheaply with me. Basically. I think there is a, a way around that, but it's not, it's not completely obvious. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, that's very web three as well, right? Like sharing mm. profits, like proving authenticity, proving who's checking what at what time. And I think that makes a lot of sense to actually share those profits. And like we said in the previous episode, I think in the UK it was estimated that GDP would increase by approximately 10% if we had a digital identity system in place. And I think this is one of the main ways in which that happens is the portability enables better customer experience, better purchasing, all this kind of stuff. And you're completely right, like the private sector right now might be missing the kind of missing the trick of this, but I think maybe the UK government will push that or governments generally need to be the people that push the digital identity space because it's probably going to be a commodity in the future, potentially. Um, okay, so I think the next one is authenticity. And like as we've said before, we can't um, emphasize this enough. Like this is blockchain fundamentals 101. It's you know, the provenance of items, the provenance of people, proving that data is authentic, proving that, say, in the instance of digital identity, that you are what your credential says you are. Um, for example, you know, if you have a passport, it's to prove very efficiently and securely that you, not only are you the owner of that passport, but also that data uh, is accurate and authentic and in date and comes from the UK passport office and proving all these things extremely efficiently and with a high degree of certainty. And I think it's also, yeah, like I said, the efficiency is the one part, but also the security and the authenticity is, is the other part. And it's like one perfect package that cryptographic tools and cryptographic um, security kind of enables, right? Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, why is this such a Web3 aspect as well? You know, is we've, we've spoken about previously, cryptography is is not inherently web3 it's existed for long before much much longer if you go back mm. to caesar and, and the caesar cipher back in uh you know however many thousands of years ago but web3 is very much the the movement or the vehicle that's taking a lot of these cryptography schemes mainstream and it's offering lots of new different proof systems with different properties mm. so you know we'll, we'll come on to um, and the other property of like privacy but the range of proof systems we're having now with, with well, you know, zero knowledge proofs, which I'm sure we'll cover in detail in a future episode. But these are kind of really amazing cutting edge type proofs that allow you to prove a claim without giving away any information about the claim itself. Mm. You just say, oh, this is true or whatever that is. So it, it's really it's um, Web3 is kind of the best vehicle to deliver on that authenticity. Right. Even though we use cryptography yeah. in our daily lives for other things in the background. 
I think Web3 is, is where it's kind of the new things are being tested and the more exciting things are we're getting now, I think. Yeah. Um, so number three on the pillars is composability. And this is a less obvious one, I think. This is something that I think would be very difficult to achieve with traditional identity systems. And this is basically selected disclosure that we've kind of talked about before. It's if I show my driving license, like Jack says, all I want to prove there is that I am over 18. I don't want them to know my address and my, how many points I've got on my license and all this kind of stuff. So composability is all around, you know, extracting one or two fields from the credential that is important and ensuring that those, you know, that those two fields still relate to an overall approved document, but only showing the verifier those one or two fields that relate to them. And this is so important because it's all about privacy again, right? Like I don't want to give them all the data. I just want to give them a little bit of data. And this also relates to another element of this is being able to combine different identities and fields from different identities and match them together. I might want to say that, you know, I'm over 18 from my driving license. I might want to say that, I don't know, I have a degree from X university or another one and just take those two fields and compose them together. And that's what the verifier sees. And they can instantly say that. Um, and I think, yeah, this is a, a, another maybe less obvious one, but very important characteristic of digital identity yeah i i really like there's potentially applications for this composability thing in you know less serious id contexts where or things like reputation systems where you're trying to build up mm. a reputation maybe in a game or uh, you know as a fan of a certain football team and and you can go and make claims about um how many maybe how many away games you've been to by getting credentials from another football club that said you bought a ticket from us you know i'm just thinking mm. um on the fly about that one but you know there are all sorts of things uh in the gaming world where you could say i got this many points in this game and this many points in this game and therefore i'm a legend of um you know open world <laughs> games for example as a, as a not not that i am obviously but you know i just think there's lots of interesting combinations of credentials you can think mm. of when it's not just the um the basic like human identifier stuff I can definitely see a one-person market for that. It's obviously you. <laughs> to prove if there's a one-person market, if there's a one-person market, then you've got to build it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so, um, good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, on that point, and and maybe saving my own gaming privacy, um, you know, brings us back to this idea, oh. right? That the kind of the fourth big. Uh, property and benefit uh, we, you know we, it's one of these ones we're hammering home and surprise surprise we do it a lot in the in the web3 podcasting we talk about privacy a lot um but it relates to that you know continuum you mentioned and there's there's overlaps between a lot of these properties right a lot of them don't exist without another right they kind of they work together mm -hmm. but this idea as you mentioned selective disclosure only sharing exactly what's needed and the you mentioned peer to peer earlier which i kind of wanted to touch on in the privacy aspect um it's the peer-to-peer -peer, typically we think about in like payments or you know sharing mm. data and things where it's you and i as two consumer level actors basically just sharing things with each other but in this context i think the peer-to-peer -peer takes on a slightly different meaning where one peer is um you as a user and the one controlling your identity the holder the other peer is actually more like a, a company entity where they're actually mm. trying to verify your credential without going through another intermediate. So you're, you're actually almost saving them the task of going through someone else, uh, which, is, which is kind yeah. of a slightly backwards way of, of doing P2P. <laughs> and, and similarly with issuing credentials that, you know, they want to be able to do that directly with you. 
um, because it's more efficient than, than having to rely on other data sources and things. So, yeah, I think privacy is an obvious benefit, right? Yeah, definitely. And you kind of you've mentioned two very important ones there. Uh, the idea of I only need to reveal the information that's super relevant, be it one field out of many, but also the idea of peer to peer. So I don't need to involve unnecessary intermediaries who then have access to the data. The other thing that we've kind of mentioned around DIDs and spinning up these decentralized identifiers, as many as you want, potentially, is then the ability to have non-correlation between you know you and mm. all your various characteristics. I might have a decentralized identifier or a did for my gaming account. And I, you know, I have loads of verifiable credentials that say, you know, Alec this did is I'm a legend, is all these things. He's uh, you know, great at this game, top one percent, unbelievable kill to death ratio, all these kind of things. But then I don't really want Enchain to know how much of a legend I am on Call of Duty. So then I have my work profile, my LinkedIn profile. It's like Alex got all these certificates, you know. He flunked all his cast classes, all these kind of things, all the all the, the lies that are on my CV potentially. And then I have a third one that's my private account with all the NFTs I own, all the board apes I own that I really do not want anyone else to know about apart from that world. Um, and I think this is quite important as well. So there's kind of these three big areas that all relate to privacy within the digital identity space. And all of them are super important. And with all them together, you do get a really, really nice um, kind of combined privacy benefit from digital identities. And I think, again, that's really, really exciting. I know we keep hammering it home, but privacy is one of the, the kind of the key core characteristics of Web3 and clearly of, of digital identity as well. Um, and, and the next one related to what you said, Jack, on the peer-to-peer -peer that we keep hammering home is also control. We've kind of mentioned it briefly, but if obviously if you're controlling the interaction and also controlling the, the person or the entity that you're interacting mm -hmm. with, you obviously control and consent to the interaction with no middle people. So exactly what data you want is used, you exactly who you want to send it to is used, when you want to use it, when you want to send it, how you want to send it. And I think control is obviously a very, very important part, and that is the next pillar that it kind of relates to, to digital identity. Yeah, and I think kind of, for me, the control aspect is subtly different from uh, the authenticity and portability kind of aspects because it's about you as a user actually being the decision maker in the the verification process. And you're, mm -hmm. you're actively choosing what you share rather than passively giving away too much data. I think that's the... The key difference but again that that's that's wrapped up in the peer-to-peer the -peer point as, as you mentioned um and this also relates to kind of the next one as well which is as you can see they all they all kind of build on one another <laughs> but all of this arrives at the the kind of sixth pillar which is security and i think this is a really this is obviously a really fundamental one because as we've talked about the security of your identity data relies on who's holding it and how much of a target they are and moving to this SSI model where you distribute the holding of information, you only provide proof, not data necessarily, to verify a credential, then you're, you're, you're reducing that attack surface, right? So you don't have these big crown jewel data sets stored in big companies where people can go, oh, that's a big mm -hmm. target for me to go and attack and, 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 and hack and, and expose on the dark web. It becomes, oh, well, now I need to hack everyone individually for their data and maybe it might still be a big problem for very very high net worth individuals but for people like you and me alec it's uh it's going to be much <laughs> much much less of a problem and i think this kind of relates to one of the downsides of all this stuff as well right it's also puts a lot more responsibility on the user like you're no longer kind of dependent on facebook to control all your data and your credentials and all this kind of stuff 
but also you know facebook they have an obligation to the user to give them the best customer experience so you know if you forget your password which i do every other week facebook will help me get back in and make sure that i can continue using the service in the digital identity space where we're saying all that responsibility is pushed to the user for the benefits of security control privacy all these things that we've mentioned then there's also the liability there. If I lose, you know, my phone or access to my, my Web3 wallet with my digital identity credentials on there, how do I get it back? And this is a kind of a big, not a big issue, I'm going to say, but it's something to consider when you're considering these kind of implementations. And a, a lot of like uh, kind of solutions will get around this by saying, okay, you actually do have a backup that's on, say, uh, a centrally hosted uh, system like AWS, but only you can access that centrally hosted system using cryptographic tools, using all these kind of things. And that's one way that a lot of solutions get around this. So it's not to kind of say that it's impossible. It's just to say these are things to consider um, around the kind of the benefit that is security. And the, the last one that we've hinted at, and it comes all the way back to the start, which is composability, is interoperability. How all of these different solutions can work together. Like right now, we have so many different credentials, so many different kind of issuers of credentials, passports, UK. Like, don't even get me started on cross-border stuff and how to prove that you're, you know, you have this credential from the UK to America. One of the main goals and also one of the main challenges of digital identity is around interoperability, how we can have all these different credentials pertaining to one person, many people cross organization, cross border, working together to make verification really efficient and really easy and good for the user and the verifier and the entire ecosystem. I'm not going to lie, this is probably one of the, the biggest limitations of the space right now, right? We have mm -hmm. so many different identity providers trying to develop these incredible solutions. But as we kind of often see is these companies aren't working together so well. And, you know, we've mentioned before the W3C standards that are emerging and probably are the leading standards, but they're not complete. Like I, I've read through them and they're a good hint at how things should be done, but they're not fully fledged. It's not to say that anyone's fully implementing them and using them. It's just, yeah, that's the goal, right? It's something that we need to aspire to. Yeah, exactly. Like in the theory of it and why we like to say it's a Web3 concept is that it should be interoperable in theory and it mm -hmm. can be. The technology exists, but it's a it's a human and a, a coordination issue that we, we have to get through. And this isn't, you know, it's, it's the case with all standardizations, it's the case with web one and the early days of web two we've we've had and to, to be fair we've had credential standards emerge in the past you know passwords and usernames are a very widely used credentialing standard and now uh, getting a link sent to your email is arguably uh, a credential standard <laughs> it's kind of maybe not a, an unspoken one but it's become one de facto <laughs> um and you have things like api tokens uh, json web tokens as well for kind of program mm. level authentication and yeah, as you say, the W3C standard is only just, I think, in 2022, gone, kind of progressed to the um, the recommendation stage. So it's taken a long time to even get yeah. there. And it takes even longer for it to get widely implemented. But, you know, as we'll come on to um, a little bit later, there are there are examples of Web3 based did systems being built using this standard. But, you know, how long it'll take to be adopted is, is, a, is another question. But, you know, at least we can say in theory that, um, interoperability is, is one of these core qualities that we expect from a, mm. a good SSI system, you know? Yeah. And I think a, a quick point that I want to make is we've mentioned these seven pillars of potential benefits and kind of aspirations of SSI and digital identity. It's quite important to say that 
I haven't seen any solution or kind of proposed solution that really embodies all seven of the pillars. And mm. that's fine, you know? Like a lot of them are kind of bespoke for certain applications. It's not like you need all seven pillars. In some applications, you know, maybe if it's an internal system, privacy might not be the big the, of the paramount concern for you. There might be some applications where, you know, you don't exactly care about security stuff. I'm not sure why. But the point is, like, it's not that when you're designing an identity solution, you say, okay, I need to have all seven of these pillars to the absolute maximum for all of my users always. Like, that, that's not always the case. It's something yeah. to aspire to. It's a continuum, maybe in... 100 years, we'll see everything perfected to the nth degree. But right now, it's not to say we need all of them perfected. Exactly. And we don't know exactly what the market demand is for all these features and benefits mm. as well. As I've proven live on the show, <laughs> maybe there's not so much demand for certain <laughs> composability ideas. But I think yeah. the demand will be definitely is very high for things like privacy and security, especially in places mm -hmm. like the EU now. I mean, I was listening to a podcast recently talking about the difference between... Um, uh, you know, in different countries and, and, and how, how different countries view privacy. And obviously in Europe, we've got such high standards at the minute. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's one of these things that I think it will be quite market determined what people actually want in, and it will determine which features we see in widely adopted SSI things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on, on that point then, given that adoption is quite a challenge, what are the specific kind of downsides and concerns? Because we've hinted at the UX, you know, user experience challenges and, and the, just the sheer complexity of of, um, of of using things like Web3 and, and Web3 based identity systems, even worse, to be mm -hmm. honest, at the minute. So, yeah, what, what, what do you think about the, the downsides of all this? Yeah, like it's we've painted a nice picture of the potential. And, you know, we've been talking about digital identity for many years now. Um, and why hasn't it been adopted? Well, there are a lot of pitfalls. Like the first one you mentioned is is probably one of the most um, extreme, maybe, is the user experience and the complexity. And this is, like, I'd say it's a, maybe one of the biggest problems with Web3-based apps or decentralized apps generally, right, is that when people think of, like, crypto, and, you know, that's the problem right now, is that whenever someone thinks about Web3, they think about crypto, is that they think mm -hmm. about, like, keys, you know, uh, seed phrases, how to get into your wallet, remembering 15 words to, you know, get my password back and all this kind of stuff. And I think that that has become less of a concern maybe um, now, but this is like incumbent in most, a lot of the applications I see is the user experience is not up to the same level as what we see from Web2 based applications. And I think this is one of the big inhibitors that we're seeing and we need to get around this. So we talked about the killer application of ChatGPT. The technology maybe wasn't so much more advanced than previous technologies. It was the user centricity and the user experience, the reduction of complexity that made ChatGPT the unbelievable success it is today and this is one of the most important things that people need to consider when they're thinking about decentralized apps and you know digital identity is how to make the user experience as seamless as possible and right now we're not seeing that i don't think yeah exactly i mean you kind of hinted at all these issues you have in in the web3 world and i mentioned the privacy problems you have if you if you don't mm. have best practices and if you just reuse wallet addresses for example these are people are really struggling with the ux challenge in in web3 and it just is it, it's almost um the the consequences are a little bit more severe i would argue in identity because mm. if you get something wrong there it's not just your doge coins that will will be sacrificed <laughs> it's your it's it's your identity and, and your mm. your pro and your 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 personhood mm. almost so yeah on the, the ux side is is very it's very challenging at the minute and also things like you know backup and 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 recovery so this might actually be a good point to, to mention the the implementation I was going to talk about. So 
one example of uh, a did protocol that's kind of been developed and, and it's being implemented is uh, is called the side tree protocol. It was developed, this as I mentioned in the last episode by some researchers at Microsoft and it's been kind of put into uh, its formalization with the decentralized identifiers uh, foundation, the diff foundation. And this is really, it's a really interesting system because they are trying to account for lots of these things, the, the, the complexity, the backup. So they have functions and operations defined for each did in a CRUD model. So the classic computing kind of create, update, recover, um, delete. Now it's not quite the same as the classic one because you have mm-hmm. um, a slightly different uh, acronym, but they're covering all the options. And, and especially I thought it was interesting that you have this recover and deactivate. So if you need to recover the, your details, if you lose one of these cryptographic keys, like you, like mm. when you'd lose your, your, your crypto wallet keys, you might lose the key that's tied to your identity, right, in some way. So they're, mm. they're building in recovery protocols and backups directly into these standards, into these implementations. Um, and, you know, they're, they're taking these things very, very seriously, but it's still a massively complex thing, right? Yeah. And it, does, it doesn't completely solve all the backup challenges necessarily, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like recovery, you know, when you're talking about blockchain and things being immutable and when you talk about like the attestation, authenticity, meaning that only you can possibly have access to these keys, like that becomes a bit of a concern when you're talking about recovery because obviously the processes are involved are a lot more intricate, let's say, and a lot more uh, difficult to do. But it's good that well, companies are finally starting to get their heads around it and hopefully like the user experience won't come at, at the cost of you know the security and vice versa the security won't come at the cost of uh, the user experience and um, and i think one of the, the next issues that i kind of want to talk about which i think it's really important is the inclusivity aspects like this is um you know in the uk specifically for the first time we had vote we have voter id being implemented right and it's really interesting to see that there was a lot of kind of um concerns and the theories that this would be a problem for inclusivity and the voter id so far in the uk which can kind of there's a lot of relation to how digital id potentially would be implemented um it actually affected um, disproportionately disabled and minority groups and this is something mm. i think we really need to be quite careful with that like we want you know, a, a dig- what well, the digital age and the digital economy is, it's everywhere, right? It's completely universal. Almost everyone in society is using it and active on it, but not everyone. And I think that is quite important. We don't want to create solutions that are so focused on the majority that it starts to negatively impact the minority. And we do need to think about, say, people that don't have phones, people that are visually impaired, people that can't easily use digital identity solutions. They can't just be left behind. And we need to maybe start to you know, think of solutions that you know, ensure that it has the, the most widespread adoption as possible and you know, benefits and doesn't leave these people behind. Yeah, I think that's a really important point for sure. And I, I also see this playing into the idea of optionality and you know, Web3, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't think, I certainly don't think that we're going to replace all physical cash with digital cash in the future mm-hmm. necessarily. I don't think we're going to replace all intermediaries with, uh, with with nothing and make everything purely peer-to-peer. There's a role to play mm-hmm. for them. I think it's more about giving the option for this better version of identity and yeah. more efficient management of identity but it should definitely be backwards compatible and and still mm-hmm. allow anyone kind of in the in the analog uh, physical world who can't onboard into into this system to still interoperate with it and there's lots of you know there's lots of um the technology hurdles i don't think are that huge i think 
we see the integration of smart cards all the time, which are very low mm-hmm. cost to produce where you can, you could um, maybe integrate certain parts of this, but it, the barrier between the physical and digital is not, is not an easy one to overcome. I don't think. No, you're definitely right. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the next big issue we talked about, who don't spend too long on it is interoperability companies, you know, spending lots of money developing these digital identity solutions potentially for internal purposes. They don't then want to let you take that digital identity and gain the benefits to their competitors. Like companies want stickiness. They want you to go into their ecosystem and stay in their ecosystem. Um, this is something that we, I mean, I don't know if it comes from regulation, comes from you know governments pushing it through or how we get around this. Um, there has to be like a way of like enforcing shared profit. I think that what will happen is if big companies like the Facebooks of the world that already have unbelievable footfall won't develop interoperable solutions for, say, digital identity, then eventually a competitor will come along, say, a much smaller player who will offer that as a USP and say, you know, you can jump between as many different providers as you want. And if you use my digital identity solution, they will become the dominant player with that kind of offering. And I think that is how it's going to play out, I hope. Yeah, for sure. I think that it's going to take a long time to resolve that that problem. But I I agree Mm -hmm. with your your thesis on, on how it's going to go, I think. So, um, yeah, thinking of the future, maybe it's a good good place to kind of round off the conversation we've had on, on Digital ID by talking about, you know, where this is going, what are the exciting future elements, like what, what's the really out there things <laughs> apart from my, my legend status in, in uh, World of Warcraft or something. But I think, I think Metaverse is, you know, we've talked about it at length, but I think it's a really good application. As you said, this many-to-one identity that you can have in, in Web3 and, and self-sovereign identity has a real role to play in in the metaverse because you're going to have lots of avatars multiple mm. different identities with different aspects and you know that's also where you know where everyone's using some digital avatar that doesn't necessarily look that much like them you might want to still have things like age restrictions in there so you have mm. age restricted spaces where you need all this composability um you need selective disclosure and selective proof of of these different claims to use the metaverse because at the minute, you know, if you go into one, you, you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know how old they are. You don't know what's going on. Right. It's kind of scary. It's a scary place to be. I've only been there for about five minutes sometimes, but, um, <laughs> but the- yeah, I'm thinking like, um, Oasis style, you know, when we're talking about like ready player one, the Oasis, like if I'm going into the, the kind of the universal single metaverse of the future, there is like the Oasis in ready player one. I'm not going to be me. I'm not going to be, you know, five foot 10, just about Alec. I'm going to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And how are you like offering 18 plus kind of services to a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Like you're completely right. You want to have the, I mean, Metaverse is the, is the perfect example of how you can imagine like a digital identity that is usable across multiple experiences. And it's, it's unlikely that we're going to have a James Halliday of the world that creates a single platform and everything falls into that single platform where they can control the rules and make sure everything's monitored, give you one digital ID and that usually works across services. What's probably going to happen is we have different kind of worlds, potentially different metaverses, if that is actually appropriate. I can't remember if it was or not. And you'll move between these services and can take your credentials from one, your experiences from one, who you are from one to the other and to the other and to the other. And no one's going to want to do that and have to log in every single time. No one's going to have to do want to do that and KYC between every different service. Like the idea of the metaverse is something that is seamless and something that feels as like the real world as possible. And I think, yeah, that is super important. The metaverse is a, is a yeah. perfect example of why digital identity is completely crucial. 
Yeah, and also that the point we mentioned earlier about kind of digital wallets for holding your credentials and your assets, that's a great example where, you know, in one of these metaverse worlds, you might end up earning digital currency or, or, you know, utility type NFTs that you can go and redeem in the real world. So you want to have your identity linked to that so that you can use them in the the metaverse platform you're using, or you can take your mobile phone and redeem them a, a physical store, right? If you want to, if you want to buy something with them in the real world, yeah. that's the interoperability that you want, not just between digital realms, but also in the physical world. I think is is really interesting. So finally, I think another really cool application and where this this will be really relevant in the future is in kind of AI and and tying digital identity to AI agents and and even IoT mm. to a degree. But yeah, I think the AI point is being so hot as it is. Um, we've mentioned before, you know, personhood for AIs as well in the future. <laughs> and maybe maybe that's going a bit far, but being able to know which which persona, which AI is being used and tying that to mm-hmm. uh, different context is going to be is going to be important, especially when you talked about the kind of payment rail stuff. Right. You want to know which AI is executing, which trades or something. Um, it, it's going to be yeah, it's yeah. going to become a relevant point, I think. This stuff, as you know, excites me so much. The idea of like AIs right now just being like tools where they do the legwork and you make the decisions. Like so so soon, we're going to see AI that has agency, but not just AI that has agency, Internet of Things devices that have agency. We've done those two topics and we've talked about how these things are going to be interacting in the real world autonomously and independently without human intervention and you're going to need identity for that like if you have drones flying around in the future dropping off you know packages here and there and recharging and having their own agency they're going to need to have some identity so they can interact safely with say charging stations or tesla cars or autonomous vehicles whatever it is we're going to need to see these autonomous agents which is ai in some cases or iot devices in other cases having identities that allow them to interact with the world having like you know verifiable credentials that say they're allowed to do this thing or they're allowed Mm -hmm. to be in this space or they're allowed to interact in this way and that is something that really excites me and i think if we don't have you know digital identity solutions but even like provenance solutions and authenticity solutions then the ai of the future and the iot of the future is going to be quite a scary place in which there's you know very little kind of transparency and auditability in how things are done. And I think, yeah, completely, completely essential for those systems to kind of work in an open world environment. Yeah, I think that that, that credentialing point you mentioned is, is is the key one for me, right? Because it's about how do you hold them to account and, and, mm. and orchestrate what different machines, because at the end of the day, we're talking about machines here, are allowed to do. Um, you know, you want to make sure that they're the, you, the only issue the, the valid credentials for you know a given time they're allowed to uh, maybe an autonomous vehicle is allowed to drive in this country for the next week and that's it that kind of mm. thing um, and even even online I think there are good use cases for bots I know we've talked <laughs> I know we've talked down about bots so far but um, in in the podcast but there are good use cases for having automated systems that like interacting with social media so you want to give them some kind of persona whereby mm. Or don't just speculate. Oh, this might be a bot pretending to be a human or something. You can actually have, you know, oh no, be transparent about it. And this is an accountable AI agent that's doing a service, and you can check what credentials I have. So you can check the limits on me as an AI agent. I think that's that's going to be yeah. very relevant. I mean, Colin, who we had on about the generative AI episode, talked about you know people already getting married to 
AI mm. peoples or AI personas. And that happened like a couple of years ago. And now I'm seeing like advertisements, not for me specifically, but for friends. I don't know what they're searching around like AI girlfriends that you can now pay for and have like a, a fully autonomous AI girlfriend that you can do whatever you want with. I have no idea. You just talk to them probably. And you probably, if you want to get married to these AI girlfriends or boyfriends, sorry, as well, AI persons, you want them to have a digital identity, right? I, I, it would not surprise me if in like five years time we'll have legal identities for ai peoples that you can then get officially married to and you know give half your wealth to and all this kind of stuff that is probably the future and speaking of you know the market demanding things i actually think that's where there will be market demand for that kind of stuff right because you've already <laughs> seen people creating ai versions of themselves to mm. talk to people uh, i'm not not saying i'm interested in this but <laughs> i think i think i think there will be demand for it out there so yeah Okay, so I think we've covered a good amount there to, to kind of wrap up the whole story about digital identity and self-sovereign ID. So yeah, no, we've covered uh, the key pillars of good self-sovereign identity systems. We've covered some of the drawbacks and some of the concerns, especially around the adoption and what's potentially going to limit that in the future. And then we've had a little bit of a, a peer into the crystal ball of, uh, of the future and what, what the future might hold. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a good place to, to end this episode. So Thank you for listening, wherever you may be, and we'll see you next time to untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.